I'm on. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. Very warm welcome to you here. If you've got a Bible, can you go to Mark chapter 6? Mark chapter 6, we will get there shortly. Before we do that, a couple of little bits of information for you. First one, if you missed last week's sermon and you're part of the church here, please make every effort to catch up because I shared some stuff that I felt God was speaking to us about. It's relevant for sort of this year as we move forward for us growing up um, in our relationship with Jesus. So if you haven't had an opportunity yet to catch up, please do that. It's online. I think the link came out on the email. So please um, do that. In relation to that, um, us growing up in our relationship with Jesus, I've got some books to recommend for you today, and I've got some copies to give away. So if you want uh, one of them, please come and grab um, them from here. They're, they're yours. Uh, the first one is we're getting back into the Gospel of Mark, which we started last um, uh, term, and we're back into it. And I've got some scripture journals here, which are fantastic ways to study your Bible. They've got the text of the Bible on one side, a blank page on the other side. They're great for taking notes and sermons, reviewing stuff, Bible study. So I've got a bunch of copies there if you want to come and grab one of those as well. Um, another couple of books that I've read recently that I want to recommend to you. The first one is this one. This one was outstanding. This was called The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church, which is part of a series of books uh, that have been published by Crossway that are all very good, but this one was excellent about God's part for his church and the fact that we're part of that and what it means for us to be part of the bride of Christ. You want to grow up in your relationship with the church and what that means, come and grab that, read that. I found that outstanding. Made my heart glad that God had saved me and come part of the church. Um, Another one, this one I must confess I haven't read, but I've listened to it. I I listened to my first audio book last year, 21st century, here I come, a little bit late, but this one is called God on Mute. Engaging the Silence of Unanswered Prayer by Pete Gregg. It's not actually a new book. I think it's been around a little while. Um, but it was outstanding. It was provoking. It was emotionally searching because if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will have had a time of where God hasn't answered the prayers that you've prayed. He has either hasn't answered them in the way you wanted or he just hasn't answered them at all in your mind. And this is a fantastic kind of... Um, study of that and ask some searching questions. I found it really deeply stirring and emotional. And as I was re- listening to it on the sidelines, watching my boys play football and train for football, because that's where I had my opportunity to do it, I found myself stirred to act to wipe away the tears a few times. But that is a fantastic one. If you want to grow up in that area in prayer and how we engage in God in some of the bigger questions, please come and have a read of that. Oops. And the last one is um, Courage for the Discouraged. This one I bought... <laughs> This one I bought um, not knowing what it was. It's actually a devotional. So if you want to grow up and read your Bible, this is a 30-day devotional, which I did just before Christmas. I thought it was about something. I didn't realize it was this, but I got it and thought, well, I'm going to do it. Now I've bought it. But this is an excellent one for those who, it says, steps to restoring faith, hope, and strength. We've all been through a bit of a tough time recently, um, COVID and the life and everything that comes through life. But I found that really helpful. So there's three copies there. One of them actually is my copy which I just, you can borrow, you can have as well. So there's three copies there. Get your relationship with God sorted out in the new year. Please feel free to come and grab any one of those if you win. You didn't have to wait, but you can have a scrum down now. That was all very polite of you. Okay, um, last thing. Next Sunday, uh, we're here as normal. Um, Here, I'll be uh, speaking on the next part of Mark. In the evening, there's a yearly event that we do as part of Churches Together, which is the Week of Prayer for Christian Unity. I am speaking at that service. So if you haven't got enough of me, 
come along and listen to me again. Um, we'll be 6.30 at Duke Street uh, next Sunday evening. We'll put the details out. Please come and um, join me that, support me. I'd really appreciate that, but that's next Sunday evening. All right, back to Mark. Have you found it? Mark 6, <laughs> verses 7 to 30. Now, what we're looking at is good, something good that costs you. I don't know what happened to you over Christmas, but I, I was poorly, which is why I, um, I've shared that. But also, because it's Christmas, I ate a lot. So I was sedentary because I wasn't very well, but it didn't ruin my appetite. And my appetite was great, and so I had chocolate for most meals, as well as all the other good things Christmas brings. But then you get into New Year, and then you're like, well, I've got to get going for 2023. I've got to get moving. I've got to go forward. And so I, I need to get back in shape. I need to start exercising. I need to rearrange what I'm eating. So fruit and veg come back on the menu. Chocolate just disappears and sweets and the like. And I have to get And that's hard work. Have you ever been in that place where you've got to get up and get moving, especially when the weather has been miserable this week? I'm still coughing most days, which makes it harder. But I know the goal is good to be in shape physically, to make sure you're eating, uh, you're eating well, eating healthily will all help me in my well-being and being useful to God in what he's doing. And so what we're looking at today is we're going to look at something good, but it's something that is costly. And it's way more costly than getting in shape and adjusting your eating. So if you're in Mark's gospel, we're just picking up where we left off last time. And we've gone through the first five and a little bit chapters um, of the gospel. And what we've seen thus far is we've effectively seen Jesus has come. Mark has told us our gospel is all about Jesus. And what we've seen is effectively Jesus being quite successful. I'll put that in inverted commas, but Jesus being successful. Lots of good things happening. We've seen John the Baptist come and prepare the way. We've seen Jesus getting baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the Father. We see him triumph over Satan in the wilderness with the temptation. He calls his first disciples. He heals a man um, with an unclean spirit. Then it says he heals many. We roll into chapter 2, and we find that he heals the paralyzed man, and he forgives sins. He calls the disciple Levi to follow him and he declares himself Lord of the Sabbath over and above the religious authorities. In chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. Great crowds follow him. Then he says he calls the 12 to himself and he designates them his apostles. Then with chapter 4, we have the parables of the kingdom, incredible teaching about the mysteries of the kingdom and then he calms the storm. They're out on the lake. He has his Lord over creation. He then goes into chapter 5. We find him heal the man who has many demons he then heals the woman with the issue of blood, and then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And so as a resume of how Jesus has been doing, there's been a lot of positive, successful things. If I had that on my resume as a church leader, I think I would be rocking the Instagram followers because of that success that's been happening. And what we do now is we roll into chapter 6. And the general tone of the gospel so far has been very positive. There's been a few hints of opposition on the way, but the overwhelming feel of it has been very, very positive. And what we have in this section is an incredibly graphic illustration of what it means to follow Jesus. And not just those positive good things, but also the negative bad things. So are we ready to read, Matthew? Have you got the team ready? All right, so we can put the, the passage up. Uh, Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 7. Off you go. I've got to read the whole page. 
And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these mir miraculous powers are at work in him. But the other said, he is Elijah. And the other said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But, the <clears throat> but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet, he and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with the haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Okay, thank you very much for those who read. That's brilliant. All right, big idea today is those who choose to follow Jesus will both see his kingdom come in power and suffer and die for their faith. Those who choose to follow Jesus will both see his kingdom come in power and suffer and die for his faith. We'll look at two things today. We're going to look at the mission and then we're going to look at the cost. First section, the mission. Jesus is the one who calls, sends, and gives. So at the beginning of this passage, it says... Jesus was out there. He was among the villages teaching. He called the 12 to himself. We've seen them earlier in the Gospel of Mark. And he called them. 
his disciples, it says he sent them out two by two and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Jesus is the one who does this. The mission is all about Jesus. This gospel is all about Jesus, but it is reinforced here. Mark is saying Jesus has a mission and he is now sending out others on that mission. It was not normal practice for the rabbis to send out disciples. Jesus was a teacher. He had gathered followers, um, those who come to him to learn from him. It wasn't normal that they would send them out um, to, te- to continue their teaching. Jesus is doing something different here. He is sending out, and he um, is sending out men who frankly haven't been stellar in their performance up till now, these 12 guys. We have seen they've tried to impede Jesus' mission in chapter 1. They become exasperated with him in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and they even imposed him in chapter 3, trying to stop him doing something. So this isn't the best resume that they have, but the sending doesn't depend on them. It doesn't depend on who, it, who they are and what they've done. It depends on the one who is doing the sending. And it's Jesus' gracious call. He calls them. He equips them. He sends them out in pairs. Um, so they have company and they have counsel. And in line with the Old Testament, they, the witness that they um, establish, their testimony can be established by, by two witnesses. So if one of them goes out and says, Jesus is the one and we've seen him do these things, the other one will say, yeah, I've seen it too. I'm part of it. So they're sent out in pairs and they go out to preach the gospel and to have authority over unclean spirits, which is a clear sign of the coming of the kingdom. And we've seen Jesus do it already himself and now his followers are doing it. And they're not been sent out to start a new work. They've merely been sent out to continue the work of Jesus and what he is doing. And then Jesus tells them what they are to take with them. He says they're not, they're not they're to take nothing for their journey except, what, a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and, to put, and not to put on two tunics. Now, what is this about? Well, they've got a walking stick that will help them as they go through the rugged terrain. Um, um, it be protection against wild beasts. But there's certain things they're not to take um, with the food, the money, the extra clothing. And what this does, for those who are astute in their Bible knowledge, will know this reflects back to Exodus chapter 12. These are the exact requirements given to the people of Israel just before they led, left Egypt. Remember Moses, plagues, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, new plague, let my people go. No, new plague, let my people go. Finally, the final plague, the Passover where God said he will pass over and he will take the life of all the firstborn unless they sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the lintel. And God says then be ready to move. Be ready to go because I'm coming to set you free. And this is what was required of the people of Israel. So when God came over, they could just go and they could be free from slavery and tyranny in Egypt. And what Mark is saying here is there is a new exodus coming. The old exodus where people left the geography of Egypt and were then taken towards the promised land by God is changing. There is a new exodus coming where someone is coming to set you free, not from a, a tyrant, a physical tyrant. For them, it would have been Rome. They're the one they would have looked at. For old Israel, it would have been Egypt, Pharaoh. He said, no, there is something we're going to come and set you free from the tyranny of sin. And you've got to be ready to move. You've got to be ready to go. And so that is what he's sending them out to do, to proclaim that message, to live in the light that you are coming to proclaim freedom to those who are in slavery and you've got to be ready to move and follow my leading and follow where the Spirit takes you to do that and proclaim that. They are not to be um, carried down, weighed down by worldly cares. What am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? 
No, you are to go, you are to follow God, you are to hear his call and go with him. They're told how to act. It says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place you will not, uh, they won't receive you and won't listen to you, then you leave. And he says, you shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony to them. It was very dusty land. That would have been very relevant. It's not so relevant here in the kind of the wet, temperate um, Northern Europe. But they're to shake off the dust. Now, what's the relevance of this? Well, Jews at the time were told that when they returned to the promised land, Israel, because the Jews would have gone out, moved around the empire, when they are to return, they are to shake off the dust of those Gentile lands as they return to the promised land of Israel. That was the practice at the time. If you went and you went traveling and you went to Greece or somewhere like that, and then you came back to Israel, came back to Jerusalem, you were to shake off the dust of that Gentile, that unclean, and you're returning to God's place, where God's people were, where the temple was, where the worship was, and it was a sign that you're returning to God. And what Jesus is saying to them, there's a new kingdom come. There's a new kingdom coming that is not based on geography, and it's not based on ethnicity, it's based on where my rule and reign is. And we've seen throughout Mark that Jesus has come to proclaim this kingdom, and the kingdom where he is the king, and if you're going to be in the kingdom, you need to respond and follow him. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who your ancestor is. I'm related to Abraham. I can trace my lineage all the way back. I live in the promised land of Israel. He says, no. And this would have been incredibly offensive to some of the Jews who would lie on that, say, that's, that's how I find my salvation. That's how I know. Because I live here and I'm related to so-and-so. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not enough. There's a new message coming, a new message of salvation. It's repentance and faith in me. And we've seen that go all the way through Mark's gospel. And the disciples are to send it out. They are to bring about that message, bring about the kingdom with what they do, how they act, what they um, take with them. And they're to preach a message of salvation and a repentance for all to come to know Jesus for themselves. And it says, sort of the last couple of verses, the summary, it says, they went out and they did what they'd been told. They proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed them with oil and the uh, who were sick and healed them. Sounds awesome. They got sent out. Jesus says, come. Jesus himself says, come. I've given you authority. Now go, buddy up, and off you go. And they go out and they preach. People repent. The demons go. People are healed. Awesome. Everyone wants Christianity to look like that. That is fantastic. But then we get to the second longer part of this passage, which is... The cost. The cost. And Mark deliberately puts this here. Because if you'd notice, the final verse we read was what? The disciples returning. And so the story's not finished. The disciples have gone out, and then they're going to come back. But before Mark gets to them coming back in verse 30, he's got this long passage all about John and John's death. And that is sandwiched in between the success and the awesomeness of ministry and all that God is doing and the kingdom is coming. Isn't it wonderful? And right in the middle, we have John dying. This is the only the second passage in the whole gospel that's not about Jesus. And the first one was about John back in Mark chapter 1. And John was a forerunner to Jesus and he came proclaiming and saying, one's coming and Jesus was the one. And then John just disappears off the scene and it said he got kind of arrested and we, we don't know any more about it, and now we're coming back to him. And what we find here is in the death of John, we find many parallels 
to Jesus and the death of Jesus. Both of them, John and Jesus, were executed by political tyrants. Both of them were silent before their victim, uh, for, for their, um, their killers. Both of them were righteous and innocent victims. And what this does is Jesus, John's death is a forerunner to Jesus. The way John dies is the way Jesus is going to die. And it speaks to us as followers of Jesus that actually we too walk in that path. We walk in that world of suffering and pain and possibly death. And so what's this about? First of all, we have the impact of what the disciples are doing. And we go to King Herod. And in the response to the preaching and the demonstration of the kingdom that's come, firstly through John, then through Jesus, and now through the 12, it is multiplying. Herod is now freaking out. Herod starts hearing about this, and the presence of God's kingdom makes him uncomfortable. Now, a little bit about Herod. This is Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. There are just too many Herods. Get some originality and call your kids something else. But they're all called Herod. Now, Herod the Great, we find in Matthew chapter 2, he was the one that the Magi visited uh, and said, where's the king born? And they go off to, Jerusalem, uh, sorry, to Bethlehem, and then uh, they say, come back and tell me, so I won't go and worship, but the Magi don't because they have a dream. And then he freaks out, and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus. Not a good guy. His son, not much better. And this is the Herod we see most in the Gospels. It's the same Herod we're going to find when we get to the end and the death of Jesus, it's the same person. Um, he was a ruler of Galilee, where Mark's gospel has been based, so it's his sort of power area, his um, region. Uh, he was a shrewd politician and builder, did lots of building products. He was also ruthless and not a good guy. In Luke chapter 3, we just find this phrase, we're talking about all the evil things Herod had done, sort of as a blanket statement that this wasn't a good ruler. He was ungodly and he was evil. Now, what, what's relevant to our story is that he fell in love with his brother's Philip's wife. He had a brother called Philip. See, you could call another name, couldn't you? You didn't have to call him Herod. Anyway, and he had a wife called Herodias, which you like, so you've got Herod and your son. Anyway, what they did was they both divorced their spouse because Herod was married too, and they married each other. So Herod married Herodias. That's ridiculous, those names, aren't they? So they married each other. John points out that that is against God's law. You can't do that. That is not allowed. It's against um, some of the teaching of the Old Testament. We find in Leviticus, chapter 18 and chapter 20. And Herod knows he's killed John because we get to his death. But Herod knows John is dead because he's already killed him. But he is freaking out because he thinks John's come back. And we get these three prevailing opinions of who's, who's doing this preaching, what's going on. He thinks John's come back to life or has Elijah come or one of the other prophets of old, which gives us an insight, which will come up later in chapter 8, of what people thought about Jesus at the time. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And actually, the disciples themselves succumbed to this because Jesus asked Peter in chapter 8, who do you say I am? And Peter says exactly the same things. Well, maybe you're you know, Elijah. Maybe you're one of the prophets of old. Uh, and then he finally has his confession of the Christ. So... There's, so there's Herod freaking out. And then we get the flashback of the imprisonment of what actually happened. So if this was a movie, we'd have Herod freaking out, paranoia, what's going on as John come back to life? And then we'd have the flashback where it all get a bit fuzzy. And we'll go and find out what actually happened. And then Mark relays to us what happened to John from chapter 1, verse 14, which is said he got arrested. He fills in some of the blanks. And so Herod has married Herodias. 
John has said, that's not right. That's forbidden under Jewish laws. This shows that one, John is righteous, knows the law, willing and courageous and willing to speak it out, while Herod is not. He is evil, he is immoral, he won't follow God's law. And it also highlights Herod's ruthlessness because he puts him in prison. His response to being told you've done something wrong, and John is in the right here, he's saying, look, God's law, you've done it wrong. He gets put in prison. Cheers for that. And he even says that he knew John was righteous and holy, which speaks to Herod's character. You're righteous, you're holy in prison. Because I don't like being told where I'm wrong. I don't like being told where I failed. And it just shows the twisted nature of sin and all that Herod was in. Despite being, uh, despite being right, he still imprisons him. And his minor act of injustice will then lead to a greater one. And then so we get to John's death. So we have a birthday party uh, where all the... The nobles and the, 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 the elite of society had come together and Herodias' daughters came and danced and it pleased Herod. We don't know much more about what the dance was, but it must have been pretty epic because he then makes this silly sort of vow to her, to this girl. He says, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it. And he vowed to whatever you ask me up to half my kingdom. And now that's just a figure of speech. He couldn't literally have given her half the kingdom because Rome would have had something to say about it. But it was just, he was saying, ask for anything and I'll give it to you. It's human power. He was obviously overcome. He might well have been, you know, three sheets to the wind. Who knows? But he, he's saying he's made this vow to this girl because she did a dance and I'll give you anything, was his response. And then she goes, well, let me think about that. I'll go and talk to mum. And mum <laughs> isn't in a good place because she's not happy with John either because John criticised her marriage to Herod and what she had done because she had divorced her husband and it wasn't good. And her response is to let's kill John. Let's kill John. And this is just, this, this action sits in a line of um, women and husbands, weak husbands, uh, women with grudges who've gone and tried to kill innocent men. We looked at it just, um, was it probably a year ago with the story of Elijah? Remember Jezebel and Ahab? And they persecuted first Naboth because he wanted a vineyard. And Ahab threw a strop. And his wife said, I'll sort this out. And next thing you know, Naboth is murdered. And Ahab gets the vineyard. She tried to go after Elijah, didn't kill him. So there's nothing new here. And the daughter just serves as a pawn in the mission of the mother to try and kind of be vindictive and rub out an enemy. And the request then comes back to Herod. Right, I want John's head on a platter. Can you imagine anyone doing that? I'll give you anything. Yeah, right, kill someone, cut his head off, and give it to me on a plate. It's horrendous what it is. But he, Herod has made the vow. His careless words have trapped him. This is the request that comes back. He has got people around him, all the elite, the military commanders, all the people who are there for the party, the birthday, having a good time. They've heard it all. They've heard the response. What does he do? How does he react to this? Does he take the moral righteous cause and say, no, I won't do that. That is an evil act. My words were foolish. I'm not doing that. No, of course he doesn't. He goes through with it. Even though he said, even though he was exceedingly sorry, and this is an example of worldly sorrow, not true repentance. He was really sorry about it, so he did it. Instead of being really sorry about it, thinking, I'm not going to do that. That's a horrendous evil act against an innocent man. I'm not going to put him to death to satisfy your whim. But he didn't. He completely caved. And the next thing you know, John is murdered. 
And John, if you notice, doesn't say anything in this. He's just there in the background, but his righteousness and holiness and innocence screams at us, but he suffers and dies at the hands of evil men and women. And despite Herod knowing the truth, he refuses to give into that and has John killed. And so John dies and his story ends there. And then we have the final thing, verse 30, where we go back to the mission. And it says here, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they'd done and taught. And so having Jesus having sent them out a few verses before, we get a one-sentence summary bringing it all back to where it started. That Jesus has sent out his disciples, they'd seen the kingdom come, it had been incredible, and then they came back and gave a report. And I imagine they were over the moon. God, it was amazing. Can you imagine this, that people got healed, people repented of their sins, the demons fleed when we told them to go? Isn't it wonderful? But right in the middle is the death of an innocent man. And what Mark is doing is basically marrying up two things. It's marrying up the mission of Jesus with the cost of following him. And the mission of Jesus is to bring the kingdom, to do the works, but the cost is suffering and death. And Jesus himself will return to this as we go through chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. He'll keep reminding of this and then he demonstrates it when we reach the end of the gospel. Whoever would follow Jesus must reckon first with the fate of John and then later the fate of Jesus. And as we go through the history of the church, you will find that coming up again and again and again. So what does this mean for us here today now, this story? Well, there's a couple of things I just want to talk about, a couple of things I want to work through. The first one is to remember the power and suffering of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus. And as we read it, as we study it, we are both reminded about his power and his suffering. They come together and they cannot be separated. We see him filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. We see him empowered for ministry. We see men and women, him calling them to following him and then responding in faith. We see the sick being healed and the dead being raised. We see demons casting out. We see his control over creation itself. We see him teaching the mysteries of the kingdom and empowering others to serve like he is and do what he's doing. But we also see suffering. We see him rejected by his own people, by his own family, wanted to kind of corral him, didn't understand what he's doing. We see the religious authorities lined up against him, showing he's misunderstood. We see them plotting to take his life. We see him accused and lied about and ultimately betrayed and murdered. And so we see this all happen. Jesus was both the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the healer, the teacher, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God come to earth, Emmanuel with us, But he was also the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, rejected, despised, scorned, beaten, in prison, and ultimately killed. And when we look at the Lord Jesus, we need to remember both these truths. And if you emphasize one over the other, you can lead to a skewed view of who he is. Jesus is victorious, mighty in power. But that was demonstrated through humility and suffering, which ultimately culminated to his death on the cross. He was both the triumphant Lord, but he was also the sacrificial lamb. And even in his resurrection body, when he rose from the dead, glorious, victorious, and we celebrate that particularly at Easter, we read in the Gospel of John 
Who was it who said, unless I see the hole in his hand, I'm not going to believe? Poor Thomas. <laughs> Gets such a bad rap. But what did Jesus do? In his glorious resurrection body, he says, he appeared amongst the 12. And he says, Thomas, look, I still bear the scars. You can see them for yourself. And Thomas requires what? My Lord and my Thomas sees the risen Jesus completely glorified in his new state and he still bears the marks of sacrifice. And so you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have the crown without the cross. And as we read through Mark's gospel and as we grow up in our relationship with Jesus, we need to keep both these things in tension. We need to be looking for the power of the kingdom to come. God's rule breaking in. Jesus being honoured and glorified, men and women coming to know him. But we also need to be aware that that comes through suffering, humility, and death. And if we go through the rest of our scriptures, we find that worked out in the book of Acts in the early church. That's what happened. God did incredible things there, which we like to talk about. Peter preached. 3,000 got saved. Yes, I'd love that to happen. And then who was it? He got murdered. James. (laughs) Suddenly, he's dead. You're like, what? How? Who? But the kingdom was growing, but the apostles were dying. So we need to remember the power of suffering in Jesus. And the second thing is we need to remember the power and suffering of his followers. What happens to Jesus will happen to his followers. That is a given. Jesus said, if they did it to me, they're going to do it to you. So whatever you read about happening to Jesus, know it will happen to his followers. There will be incredible breakouts of the kingdom as the gospel is preached. The sick will be healed, people will be set free, and many, many will come to know him. And we see this through the book of Acts and then through the history of the early church. You ever read any church history? You see incredible, amazing moves of God across the world where so many people come to know him and people are set free, and it's glorious to read. And they continue even to this day, but there is also great suffering for believers. John is an incredible example of that. And he's a silent example because he doesn't even, you don't even speak in that passage, but he is innocent, he is accused, and then he is killed. And church history bears this out. There are many, many, many throughout church history who have died for their faith, many martyred in the most horrific ways, but they died following Jesus. And so there's a few things. We need to respond to this as a church. There's a couple of things I just want to suggest to you today. First one, remember the worldwide church. We're a little local congregation here, one little part of the world, but actually God's church is all over the world and it is growing and multiplying. And there are places where there is incredible suffering for those who follow Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been on the website opendoorsuk.org, but there it lists... um, areas in the world that are suffering in the persecuted church. I looked on it this morning and it said in 2022, as far as they could tell, five, I think it was 5,968 Christians have been martyred for their faith. And as far as I'm aware, that's 5,968 too many. But that's what's happening in the world around. It lists the top countries in order where it is hostile to the Christian faith. Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, There are nations in the world right now with people right now who are believers like us who are suffering and dying because of their faith. And 
when, because we live in a very comfortable part of the world where we can do this stuff publicly and by and by we're allowed to get on with it, we can forget that there's stuff happening now around the world. And even this morning as I kind of looked at it and I thought, I'll, I'll look at what's current, I started finding myself praying for the churches and these people and saying, God, I don't know, I have no clue what it's like there, but God, strengthen them, give them grace, let your kingdom come in those places. Second thing we can do is we can do the works of the kingdom. We find ourselves here now, and God has called us to this place for this season, and we are to do the works of the kingdom. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily. We are to go out into our day, and we are to proclaim the kingdom of God. We are to pray for the sick. We are to speak out against injustice. We're to oppose the works of the enemy wherever we find them. And we are to be men and women who have been called by God, equipped by God, sent by God out into the world to bring his message. And we are to look for that opportunity daily. And it was great that Rob came up and talked about Alpha. There's an opportunity there. Who do you know you could think, come on, why don't you think about coming to the Alpha course? There's pizza. I have my two sons who do follow Jesus said, Daddy, can we go to Alpha? And I said, why? And they just went, dominoes. And I said, no, and, and no, we'll talk about that later. But, but they, they heard it, and they was like, okay, no. But it's an opportunity there. Think, pray, act on that, step out. And the final thing, and this is where it gets to the crux, be prepared to pay the price. Be prepared to pay the price. Get ready to pay the price. When we do this, we will face opposition and suffering. And I will be honest with you, that terrifies me. Especially when I read a story like John. Especially when I go to a website and say, what's actually happening now around the world? And some of you are suffering now or watching others suffering. And this could be emotional, physical, spiritual. And as we follow Jesus, we will face suffering. We will face opposition. And ultimately, we will face death. Because there is an enemy who wants to steal and kill and destroy, who has a kingdom of darkness opposed to the kingdom of God, and he will oppose us at every turn if we are choosing to follow him. And so wherever we find our space, find ourselves in our schools, in our colleges, in our workplaces, even in our homes, our family groups, we will face opposition and suffering as we live out the kingdom of God. That is inevitable. That is where we're heading. That is what's happening now. And that can look at look lots of different ways and in our kind of fairly comfortable western way no one's being dragged into prison and killed yet but we still face it we can be laughed at we can be rejected we can be bullied we can be ostracized we can be missed out and overlooked talked about gossiped behind our back and it's low level compared to some of the things in the world but it's what we face here and now and it's some of those things that in those times what are we going to do what are we going to do when you feel that tension? Are you going to be squeezed into the, the world's mold and try and look like the world just so please don't hit me? Or are we going to stand and say, no, we've been called, we've been sent, and we've been given authority by Jesus to do the works of his kingdom in this place, and we will do it regardless of what happens. Are we willing to pay the price? Because Mark says that when you do that, God moves, God moves in power, it's incredible, but at the same time, there's kickback, there's 
opposition comes. And part of our growing up as a church this year is we have to face this truth and we just have to get comfortable with it. Not that we go and look for bad things that happen to us, that'd be ridiculous. But as we follow Jesus, we just need to be aware that's going to come. And there'll come a point for all of us, daily, weekly, monthly, where we say, what are we going to do? Are we going to push through and follow Jesus and see his kingdom come, or are we going to cave and try and look like the world so we don't have to put up with these things? Because John kept going to the end. He kept going to the end. And the the story of the Bible and the story of the church is littered with men and women who kept going to the end. And the good news is that Jesus is always with us. He will always strengthen us. He will always hold us as we hold on to him. And so are we going to be men and women who keep going? And I'm just going to pray now for us to finish because it's quite a thing to do. And I'd love us to respond in faith now. And in one sense, if you're not in the middle of this, there's not much you can do, but you can put a flag in the ground and say, God, I'm going to stand for you no matter what comes. No matter what comes. And what I'm facing now, what's happening in my school, what's happening at work, I'm going to stand for you. And I want to do the works of the kingdom. So maybe you want to stand, can the band come up? And I'd just love to pray for you. And I'd love you to do some business now with the Lord. We're going to sing and God might say some other bits and pieces. That's great. But I'd love us to make an example now. And I'd love you to make it soberly. Because we've read some pretty searching stuff there with John's story and how it ended for him. And I bet he didn't envision being the the forerunner to the Messiah ending quite like that. And we don't know how our life's going to end. We don't know where it's going to go. But are we going to keep going? And so maybe you want to close your eyes, open your hands, and I'm just going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you have called us. I want to thank you that you have sent us I want to thank you, you have given us authority to do the works of your kingdom, Lord Jesus. It's not on us, on our our spiritual CV or what we can bring to the party. It's just on you and what you choose to give us graciously, Lord God. I pray as men and women, we'll be full of your spirit now. Men and women, full of your spirit. Open our eyes to see you afresh, to know you more, to worship you to be part of your church family, to grow in relationship with you, God. But we also, you give us opportunity now to serve you. Lord God, I pray you'd open doors and wherever we find you to pray for people, to share our stories, to share your good news, Lord Jesus. And I want to say that actually whatever the price is, God, I want to follow you all the days of my life. And I don't know what the future holds, But I want to put a flag in the ground today to say, I will follow you. I will follow you. Even when it means suffering, even when it means opposition, even when it means ostracism, bullying, name-calling, whatever it is, and ultimately, even if it means death. But when I get to the end, I will be still following after you. I'm just going to give you a moment. You pray your prayer. You know your situation. You know what's going on. Pray for the Spirit to fill you and make your commitments to God now.